We're just going to do half the chapter. A um, lot of great stuff here in chapter 9. I've really, I think I say this all the time, it doesn't matter what book we're in, I've really been enjoying our, our travel through Matthew so far and kind of taking it a little bit slower than usual. You know, I tend to be a guy, I like to take like a chapter at a time, but sometimes that gets moving a little too fast. So I feel like the Lord's telling me to slow down a little bit, concentrate on some details. And uh, so last week we uh, finished off chapter 8, and there was, uh, again, just a lot of uh, things happening. Matthew is, is going to start just recording events, just bang, bang, bang. And, and it's good for us to realize how much the Lord was doing, that uh, sometimes we can read a story. We, you know, we read uh, the end of chapter 8 and the things that were going on there, and we just read it kind of story by story, but we forget that these were all right behind each other. That Jesus went from healing Peter's mother-in-law to a huge group of people that showed up at Peter's house, and he cast out demons with a word, and he healed people, and then they jumped in a boat, and they went into this raging storm, and then they met these two demon-possessed men, and these were events, just one right after the next. And we kind of get the idea how exhausting these things were, because in that raging storm that these fishermen who were seasoned panicked. But where was Jesus? He was asleep in the boat. And I think that it tells us two things. One, of his humanity, that he chose to be under the same restraints that we are. Being God Almighty and eternal, he chose to be tired. He, he, he put himself in that same place. He wasn't just pretending to be tired that he was exhausted. But I think it also tells us about the peace that he had, that his father was in absolute control, and that he could rest even within the storm. But Matthew's going to continue to just bring event after event. And uh, so here in chapter 9, same thing, we see these things happening, but we also are going to see Matthew uh, himself being called. And, and it's interesting uh, to me how little detail Matthew gets. I think if I was telling a story or giving my testimony, I, I'd make that a, a couple chapters, right? Matthew's like, and Jesus called me? Or Jesus called Matthew? And Matthew said, okay, and that, that's kind of it. But it, it is cool to see how he, he's putting all these events together because it shows each one of these gives us just an insight into the character of Jesus, How does he deal with people? What does he get uh, joyful about? What does he get stern about, right? Those are the things that tell us who he is and what he's about. And and so with all of these, one of the things that just keeps coming out to me is the great compassion the Lord has on us. And we see it uh, throughout, well, we see throughout the whole, all the Gospels, but I, I see it very much in this chapter here. So let's pray, and we will get into chapter 9. God, again, we are thankful that we get to meet together, that uh, we are able to come together as a family to study your word, to hear from you. And we pray that you would speak to us today. Holy Spirit, that you take your word and you would apply it to our hearts. God, help us to know Jesus Christ better today than we knew him yesterday. Lord, have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 1, chapter 9. It says, 
So we got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. And then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk. And that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on the earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Arise and take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Um, Verse 1 says that he crossed over to his own city. If you remember, at the end of the chapter, he had uh, delivered the two demon-possessed men. One of them was Legion, that's talked about in the other Gospels. And and it's this crazy event where Jesus casts these demons out and into the pigs, and the pigs run down into the sea, and they all drown. And it's this crazy thing. Then the people from the city come out, and they hear all of this, what's happened. And instead of being grateful, instead of being glad that Jesus is there and has delivered these men who were dangerous men, they, people couldn't even travel that way because of these two demon-possessed men, and now they're delivered, and instead of being grateful, they say, go away. And they ask Jesus to leave. And so he does. And so he's crossed from Capernaum over to the area of Gadaria and uh, delivered these two men. Now he's heading back to Capernaum. And that's what it's referring to when it says that he traveled to his own city or crossed over to his own city. Uh, At this point in Jesus' ministry, Capernaum was kind of his base of operations. Uh, it's where several of the disciples were from, Peter, James, John. Uh, and it's where Jesus was doing a lot of ministry here. And so as he goes back and returns, there's this group of people that brings him a man who's been paralyzed. And he's been paralyzed for a long time, for his, uh, most of his life, or all of his life. Luke 5 and Mark chapter 2 record that they were so set on getting this guy to Jesus, that though there was a crowd there, they went up on top of the roof of the house and let him down through the roof in front of Jesus. Now, however you picture that, or whatever the events that were going on that day, it is a super bold move from his friends. I mean, that's, that's bold, because Jesus already at this time was a very respected teacher. He was well known. Again, there's a crowd there at this house, and, and they're just like, we will not be detoured. We, we will make a scene. We will do whatever we need to do to get our friend to Jesus. And I love their determination to do that, right? It would seem, and you kind of put it together uh, through a couple different things, that the man himself was not really on board with this plan. that he was like, guys, come on, don't make a scene. Let's not do this. Hey, you know, Jesus is busy. Whatever he was doing, he seemed like he was backpedaling a little bit. He wasn't on board with this whole thing. And one of the things uh, that tells us that is that it's not his faith Jesus talked about. It's their faith. 
It's the faith of his friends that Jesus recognized. That he was the one that was, well, I don't know. And maybe he was just terrified to hope. I mean, can you imagine you've been paralyzed your whole life and they're like, hey, there's this guy that's doing miracles and, and maybe he can heal you. You'd, it would be terrifying to hope. You know, get your hopes up. Maybe something's going to change. Maybe things are going to be different just to be let down again, right? Um, and that, that's possible. Again, I'm just guessing at what, where this guy was. Um, but his friends had the faith and the determination. And again, I love that. I think it speaks a lot to us that sometimes we're put in that place. You know, if, you're, if you've had somebody close to you, a family member, a friend, somebody that you care a lot about, and they go through a rough time and their faith is in this low place, that's when the Lord calls us up to be a friend like this, to go, you know what? I'm going to have faith for the both of us. I'm going to be taking you before the throne of God, and I will not be detoured. And even if they say, no, don't do that, I'm going to anyway, (laughs) right? Because we know that Jesus is the answer. Even if they're in a place where they can't see it right now, they're not excited about it, they're afraid to believe it, whatever it is, that's okay. We can be that friend of faith and determination. We can be the one to take them before the Lord, just like these people did with this paralyzed man. Again, another thing that shows that he wasn't super stoked on this whole thing is the first thing Jesus says to him directly is, son, be of good cheer, which means he was not of good cheer. <laughs> and, and again, picture how embarrassing or at least how uh, overwhelming it would be that here Jesus is teaching Your friends, they're not listening to you, and they lower you down through this hole in the roof in front of Jesus, interrupting absolutely everything and making a total scene. I know that I would feel like this big. I'd just be like, oh, I just want to disappear. Lord, I'm so sorry. I told him to stop, whatever it would be. And the Lord looks at him and goes, hey, it's okay. Cheer up. It's all good. You know, then he, he sees their faith. He sees this guy and... And again, what he's telling him is, my son, cheer up. This is a good thing, right? Jesus knows what he's going to do. And he knows that he's, he's uh, pleased with the situation. He's not upset that his Bible study was interrupted. He's not upset that they put a hole in this roof, you know, that he is excited that this guy's here. Cheer up. Everything's good. And then Jesus blows everyone's mind. And I mean everyone's mind. This would have been the man that was there, his friends, the disciples. And certainly we see the report of the scribes, the religious leaders who happen to be there as well, when Jesus says, says, your sins are forgiven you. Now some people try and link this guy's paralysis to his sin. And go, well, okay, he was involved in some sin and something happened and so... That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is is making it clear what he's come to do. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that I think sometimes we get distracted with the miracles and the healings and and all of these things that Jesus does. And we go, well, that's why he came. Well, he did those things out of compassion. But it is not what he came for. Jesus came to save us from sin. 
And so as this man is put here in front of him, and the focus on everybody there is, can Jesus make this guy walk again? Jesus is like, what's really important is that I can actually forgive his sin. And again, that's so far beyond what anyone there would have even thought would have been spoken by Jesus. Because to them, to the Jewish group that was there, understand they had a really good understanding of the power of sin. I think in many ways, much better than we understand it in our, in our Western culture. That we look at sin and we're like, oh, okay, it's a bad thing, don't do it, right? But in, in the Jewish culture, they knew, because of the law, because of the sacrifices and those things required, that their sin was upon them. It was a debt that they owed God. And they knew what sacrifices had to be made for each sin. And when those sacrifices were made, it wouldn't matter how many bulls or lambs or animals died. They also understood that even at the greatest sacrifice, it only covered sin. It never took it away. It was never forgiven. That's how the Jewish people lived. They understood the weight and the debt that sin has upon our lives. And so for them, if you were to ask somebody before this event and go, well, what do you think uh, Jesus is able to do? Can he erase this person's sin like it never existed or make him walk? And they're like, much better chance he's going to make this guy walk. Because erasing sin to them was impossible. And so just with a word, again, Jesus goes, hey, your sins are forgiven. Gone. You know, I mean, again, think of the power of, of just that simple saying and, and how important it is. Now, again, we, we look at this and, and we can miss some of the details. Jesus forgives this guy's sin if he is the Messiah, the Son of God, not just a leader, not just a ruler, not just a teacher, but God with us. And he has the power and the authority to forgive sin. If he's not the Messiah, then he's a liar and a blasphemer and could not be trusted on anything. It is one or the other with Jesus. And so people today, a lot of times, will go, well, I just think Jesus was a good teacher. I think he was a good guy. I think he meant well. Well, if he said he was the Son of God and he wasn't, then he was a liar. And he's not a good person, and he can't be trusted. right? So it's one or the other. There, there's no gray area with Jesus. And really, as he is saying these things, that's where he's bringing this group, including the scribes who are sure there's no way this guy is the Messiah. He, he's got to be just a false teacher. He's blaspheming. But again, they're thinking this to themselves. They're not saying it out loud. They're not saying it to each other. They're saying this within their own hearts. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts answers them, right? Now, another thing, again, with these scribes, with these religious leaders, they think Jesus is blaspheming. And and I've had people ask, well, if the religious leaders in Jesus' day didn't believe he was the Messiah, then why should we believe it today? I mean, shouldn't those have been the guys that knew? Didn't they understand the scriptures? Weren't they looking for the Messiah? Well, here's the thing. 
Why didn't they believe it? he wasn't the Messiah? It wasn't that Jesus didn't fulfill all the scriptures. It wasn't that he didn't fulfill all the prophecies. He did. He was of the line of David. He was from Bethlehem. He had done all those things. Even the miracles that he's doing are fulfilling prophecy about him. It's not that he spoke against scripture. It's not that he was against the law of Moses. They did not accept him because he didn't do what they said. He didn't obey them. In fact, he corrected them. He rebuked them. He called them hypocrites. That's why they didn't believe him. They were so sure that they were right that they never even for a moment considered that they might be the ones who were wrong. And as a result, they missed it. And so Jesus addresses their thoughts in verse 5 and says, For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or arise and walk? And again, this is where Jesus separates himself from everybody. Because he isn't saying, well, guys, it's just as easy for you to say, you know, arise and walk or your sins are forgiven. He's saying, for me, I can do either one, but you can't do either one. So he's, he's separating himself from the scribes, from the Pharisees, going, for me, it's as easy to say your sins are forgiven or arise and walk, because they're both true when I say them. And in verse 6, he says, but that you may know. And this is where we also kind of start to understand. Jesus is allowing all of this and is doing all of this, not just to heal this guy, but for them to understand who he is, for them to understand the authority he has, that the scribes, the religious leaders would get it to some degree that he is exactly who he said he is. And he uses that same term, the son of man. He uses it a lot. And it was an interesting term because he could use it and it was like they weren't sure if he was calling himself the Messiah or if he was just calling himself, you know, like King David referred to himself as the Son of Man. But it's a term that in Daniel and in Psalms has this beautiful balance, this beautiful kind of a contrast to it. In Daniel, the Son of Man refers to the Ancient of Days, of all glory and all power. And in Psalms, it refers to the king with great humility, right? And Jesus is both. So he calls himself the son of man. He identifies to them really who he is. And then he's telling them, look, here's the evidence. Here's the evidence that I have the authority. Because honestly, he could say, hey, your sins are forgiven. And there's no proof necessary, Right? There's no physical thing that he could point to and go, look, see, I I forgave his sins. And so he says, so I'll give you evidence. Rise up and walk and go home. And the guy does. Now, I love it. And again, it's just Jesus saying, look, this is who I am. I've got the power. I've got the authority. And I'm doing this that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Now, I also, again, I, I... Maybe it's just my own picture I get of this guy, the paralytic who's been healed. That he's a very no-conflict kind of guy. <laughs> he, he wasn't real stoked on being there. He wasn't excited. He was, he was, you know, Jesus had to tell him to cheer up. And then Jesus says, 
take your bed and go home. And he just does. He's like, all right. You know, <laughs> a conflict seems like it's starting here. I should go. And he just like disappears and he's gone. And that's okay. You know, but it, it is funny that he, it, he just left. There was nothing to it. And then in verse 8, it says, The multitude saw it and they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Uh, there's a lot in that. Uh, and so it's not just that everyone suddenly went, oh, good, yay, that's, that's what a great thing happened. It's that they saw the miracle, but they also saw the character of Jesus. They saw how he's interacting with this person and with the scribes and, and how the whole scene has gone down. And when it, even when it talks about that the power was given to men, they're speaking of the Messiah. They're not saying, hey, look, we can all do this. This power has been given to men. They're going, no, look at what's taking place right before our eyes. The Messiah is right here. He has come. And they glorified God. And again, a bit of a side track, but that's the right response. That when we see the Lord working, and whether that's in a small way or in a huge way, whether it's something that we got out of a Bible study or whether it's something, a miracle that takes place, that we are those that respond just like that, that we glorify God. Too often, we glorify a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist or, oh, aren't they the greatest? Aren't they the best? Look at how they're being used. Look at what's going on. No, they're just a vessel. They're just the mailman. They're just delivering the message, right? We need to be those that are glorifying God in awe, you know? And I love that it's like the multitudes marveled. That's right. We should marvel at the great things God does. But he's the one that gets all the glory. All right. Verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, Matthew uh, just briefly touches on the Lord calling him. And, and again, I think this is part of Matthew's personality. You know, he's a very kind of detailed guy. Uh, the other Gospels tell us that Matthew is also called Levi. So uh, not to be confused, there aren't two different people. Uh, that he's the son of Alphaeus. There's another son of Alphaeus who's part of the disciples, so he, he may have had a brother that was a disciple as well. But Matthew being called would have been a shocker to everybody. It would have leveled the disciples. A tax collector? Tax collectors were, were in the same level as the Roman oppressors. Maybe even worse in some people's minds. And I'm, I'm amazed that, you know, as Jesus calls Matthew, we're never given like any direct conflict that takes place in the disciples, but I'm pretty sure it would have been there. 
Tax collectors were seen as traitors in Israel. They worked for Rome, and they extracted taxes from their Jewish brothers and sisters. They were people who were cast out of the synagogue, and it was even hard for them to buy anything in marketplaces because of being tax collectors. They were considered the worst people in Israel um, because, you know, even a leper, they didn't have a choice of what happened, but a tax collector chose this place. And so most, most often, in probably every case, they abandoned all of the law, all of the traditions of Israel, and they considered themselves to be Roman. And so for everyone around, they were, they were hated. Now, Rome made it even worse. Because the way they set up how a tax collector got paid is that they'd set up a quota for a, a town or a, a region. And they're like, okay, you need to extract this much in taxes. But anything you extract above that is your pay. And there was no ceiling on that. And so when somebody came to the tax office, they would just bump the price a little bit on everybody. And these guys made tons of money. But again, everyone was aware of that. So not only were they working for Rome, not only were they taking taxes from their brothers and sisters, they were purposely bumping the price and stealing money and living very, very well off of their, their people. Now again, I, I, I just am amazed at the people that Jesus chose, right? You've got your blue-collar workers, you know, your middle-class guys, the fishermen, and they do their thing, and they're, they're pretty normal probably for the most part. But then you've got guys like Simon the Zealot, and even Judas Iscariot. The Zealots and the Iscariots were the terrorists of their day. Rome considered them to be terrorists. They were the extremists. These guys were intense. I mean, their families, their groups were intense. And so on the very, very other end of the spectrum from the Iscariots and the Zealots, you've got the tax collectors. And Jesus goes, hey, follow me. <laughs> I just picture all of the disciples going, what? That guy? And Matthew followed him. Again, not only would it have been hard for the disciples, but understand Matthew was leaving a lot. He had the protection of Rome. He had the authority of Rome. He was making a lot of money. And he was going to leave that and put himself into the Jewish community that hated him. In Capernaum, again, Peter, James, John, some of the other guys lived in Capernaum. He was the tax collector for all of Capernaum. They paid taxes to Matthew. They knew him. And now he's going to leave all of that to put himself in a very difficult place. But because Jesus called him. Now, um, the other thing I see here, and I think it's important, Jesus doesn't ask Matthew to change his politics, denounce Rome, prove himself in any way. doesn't ask him to clean himself up before he could follow. And that's important because I think we can still get in this place where we try and change somebody's details 
before they can come to, Lord, to the Lord. Oh man, they would be great if only they weren't this. And so we want to see their attitudes, we want to see their vices, we want to see their politics change, and then we'll tell them about Jesus. That's not how it works. It's not how it's ever worked. Jesus says, follow me. And when we follow him, he meets us right where we're at. In our own tax booth, in our own little places of comfort, in our own life of being an outcast among others, Jesus called to us and said, follow me. And it's from that point, he begins to change us. And that's why I never get that hung up. I've had people say, well, you know, that this person, they, they, here, this is their stance on that, and this is what they think about that. Or, or even cut, they'll say what their own things are. Well, I'm a Christian, but this is what I believe. And this, I'm like, I don't worry about that. You love Jesus. You get in his word, and you seek him, and you ask him to change you from the inside out, and you know what? He's going to do that. It isn't up to us to try and argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven or to argue them into some corner they can't get out of. It's to deliver the love of Jesus Christ. And he calls to Matthew with that love and says, follow me. Verse 10 says, now it happened as Jesus sat, or excuse me, as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. What was the outcome of calling Matthew? The outcast invites all the other outcasts to come to Jesus. <laughs> I love it. Again, it's how it's supposed to work. It isn't that Matthew cleaned up his whole life first. It isn't that he got everything in order and then went and told everybody. He went the same day and told all the other outcasts, I met this guy named Jesus, and you guys got to meet him. And it was a big group. It, it doesn't describe it very well, uh, here, because it says that, well, they sat in the house. But the idea is the house was like opened up into like this courtyard area, that it was such a large group. And how we know that is because it says that when the Pharisees saw it. It's not just they saw that Jesus was in Matthew's house. It's that they were able to observe from outside everything going on. And all the other sinners and tax collectors and the disciples and everybody else and it was from the outside that they were able to go, hey, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Right? So it was a big group. Now, again, I love that Matthew calls all of his friends. And I have found in my years of ministry that it is the most unlikely people that start spreading the word like never before right? It's the people that come to the Lord and they're still just an absolute train wreck, but they go to all the other train wrecks and they're like, man, you gotta know what happened. And pretty soon these train wrecks are all showing up in church. And I'm like, yes, you know, awesome. Because the Lord is so able to work when we uh, come to him honestly. And, and that's what I see here is people just come to the Lord honestly, and the Lord's not afraid to be counted among them. Right? He didn't like sneak into this dinner. He didn't have a little quiet place and no one could see him. He is fine to be at the table with these people. And again, it's a big deal. In Jewish culture, 
to share a meal with a person, it's not just being kind. It's not just a matter of like, well, I don't want to be at the table with you. To share a meal in their mind was, usually there'd be like the food in the middle. It might be bread. It might be meat or whatever. And you would tear a piece off and everyone was tearing off of that same piece. Everyone's ripping off the same loaf of bread and there'd be one bowl that had like a sauce or something and you dip in that bowl and everyone's dipping in that same bowl. And then you're eating the same food. And to them, it was this whole picture of we're becoming one. We're, we're taking in the same thing. We're uniting together. We're in unity. We're becoming one. And so that was their fear is that if they ate with a sinner or a tax collector, then they would be becoming one of them. And the question is, why was Jesus so willing to eat with them? Because they were learning who he was. They were becoming one with him. And again, we see Jesus is breaking their rules in order to prove that people are more important than their rules. Tax collectors and sinners and the lost and the broken are more important than their ideas of being unclean. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, Jesus' response, it, in our minds, it seems uh, pretty, pretty subdued. I mean, it's, it's a nice way of, of putting these things. But understand that uh, for them, this, his response is intense and powerful. And I'll explain that as, as we get to it. But it would have blown their minds. First, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Again, as we've talked about before, the Jewish leaders, they didn't believe they were sick. They thought they were fine. In fact, they thought that they had risen to a place above sinners, that there were the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, and then there were all the common sinners, the, just the, the dregs of humanity. And they were above all that. They were the righteous. They had climbed the steps of holiness and, and become righteous. And Jesus is letting them know that that's not the case. That they have misunderstood, and unfortunately so many people today still misunderstand the purpose of the law. You know, the Ten Commandments were never given to make people perfect. They were given to show us our imperfections. The Ten Commandments and all of the law is a comparison between us and God. God has never broken one of those laws. And as we look at it, we go, well, yeah, I have. And we like to say, well, okay, I haven't murdered anybody and I haven't stolen anything of great value and I haven't done this. You know, we just kind of work our way around how it's okay. But if we're honest, we go, no, what the Ten Commandments do is they show me I'm a sinner. It's what they're supposed to do. The scribes, the Pharisees, religious leaders had convinced themselves that they were keeping all of the law and that they were above it. And he tells them in verse 13, go and learn what this means. And this is interesting because this is a scripture they knew. And he quotes from Hosea 6 saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. In other words, here's a scripture you know, but you don't know what it means at all. This was a scripture that they would quote as they talked about the goodness of God. 
but they didn't understand they didn't understand how it applied to them or that, that God's character is much more of mercy than it is desiring sacrifice and the full verse from Hosea 6 verse 6 says I desire mercy not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than the, the, more than burnt offerings the knowledge of God the Lord is saying look I want you to know who I am. That's what he was saying through Hosea. That's what Jesus is saying now to this group that's there, these religious leaders, going, I want you to know my character. And my character is one of mercy, not sacrifice. It's not about climbing steps to earn righteousness. It's about knowing you're broken and receiving mercy. Completely different from what they believed. To have the knowledge of God, of who He is, to know His character. Now, to them, and still to people today, there are a lot of people that would say, you know what? I'm not that bad. I'm okay. I'm not as bad as a lot of people. And I don't really even think I need forgiveness. And here's, this is where what Jesus' response has that intensity and power to it. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they're saying, we don't need what you're offering. We don't need forgiveness. We don't need to deal with sin. And Jesus' response is, then I guess I haven't come for you. And that should terrify everyone. That God himself would leave heaven and come to earth and people go, no, no, I don't need forgiveness. I got it. Then I guess I haven't come for you. you haven't, if you're not sick, and if you're not unrighteous, then I guess I'm not here for you, because that's who I've come for. I've come for the broken. I've come for the sick, to heal, to show mercy. But to somebody that doesn't believe they need mercy, then the Lord's not here for them. I see it as like, again, picturing Matthew's table, right? And he's got all of his worst, the, the, his friends, but the worst of society there in Capernaum, right? It's, it's the tax collectors and probably prostitutes, and it's, it's the outcasts in every way. And they're all at this table with Jesus. And then you've got, I picture another table, and it's filled with all the self-righteous. And we get to choose, which table do we want to sit at? One, we find mercy and forgiveness. The other, we can sit around and talk about how great we are. We want to be seated with the Lord, of course. We want to be at the table with those who have understood that we serve a God of mercy, that loves to show mercy, that loves to give forgiveness more than he desires anything that we could ever sacrifice. Not looking for us to climb steps, looking for us to kneel down in humility and receive his mercy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you are a God of mercy and forgiveness and and that you love us, that you want to be seated at a table with people just like us, the, the outcast and the lost and the broken, Lord. And thank you that you don't leave us that way that you desire to bring healing, to take us further to 
make us into new people, that you give us new life. And Lord, we pray that you would then use us, that you would use us this week to tell people of your great love, that we'd be like Matthew out there among the lost and the broken, telling people you got to hear about Jesus and the great love that he has, Lord. Help us to invite people to the table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.